If you didn't note, I have two major questions which were um, directed for this talk. So there is a challenge as to time. However, as to the first question, is natural law found in the Bible? I could offer you a long break by responding with an argument from authority. Since already in the fourth century, Gratian made a definitive answer in his decretals, stating the natural law is that which is contained in the law and the gospel. However, not everyone agrees with Gratian. Therefore, I need to move forward and take a little more of your time. And I will, in some broad strokes, begin with noting, begin by noting three groups who would respond negatively to the question of finding natural law in the Bible. Their arguments, I would say, highlight the need for our discussion of this question. The first well-known group of critics are the old and new rationalist natural law theorists whose origins stretch from Descartes through Hobbes, Locke, Hume, Kant, and beyond. Most of these deny God entry into the moral political sphere and often implicitly or explicitly reject a Christian understanding of soul as well as any concept of final end, which Father uh, Holtz noted this morning. Hobbes, for example, considered all laws to be political agreements, the will and appetite of the state. He reduced natural law to human laws, rationally agreed upon to further individual desires for pleasure and power. Even Kant, who rejected radical materialism for a more traditional anthropology, and a metaphysics of morals replaced objective foundations of natural law with subjective laws constituted by man. A second group, I would call these the purists and it has various branches. These normally believe in God, but maintain a strict division between divine and natural. Therefore, God and scripture are banned from natural law discourse. Dom Laudan is an example. He believed that as soon as one allows anything of the supernatural to enter into a discussion of natural law, the very nature of natural law is distorted. You destroy its intrinsic character as a dictate of reason. Laudan wrote that one runs the risk of not grasping this essential mark of the natural law. If he considers the ordination of natural reason imminent to man in the perspective of an ordination of a lawgiver, even a divine one, because it is outside of nature. Now, due to time, I would only make a brief reference here to the new natural law theorists because I would put them in this same category. They argue differently, but they will arrive at the same conclusion of something of a separation, a parallel structure of the scripture, the Mosaic law, and natural law. I'll move on to a third heterogeneous group, which includes Christian exegetes and ethicists. 
Many of these are contemporaries who emphasize divine law to the detriment of natural law. One subgroup speaks of natural law, God and scripture, but they negate any connection between the three. Marcus Bockmuller is a representative of this. He redefines natural law as simply the way things are without any reference to God. Natural is restricted to identifying something which is not of divine origin. So we strip away God and eternal law from natural law. And basically, we have no hope of finding natural law in either the Old or New Testament. Now, the obvious question that arises, which again, Father Holtz noted this morning, is Paul's declaration that the Romans know something of the law. Bachmal acknowledges Paul's words, but he interprets them to mean that the Gentiles only have a subjective knowledge of God's law, which is not really a law per se. It's merely something of a promulgated uh, rational order of human reason. So it's not natural law as we would understand in a Thomistic or Aristotelian perspective. These scholars, the purists, are not even interested in a question of natural law and scripture or natural law and grace. Another subgroup of this, these exegetes and ethicists offer a nuanced interpretation of scripture. And they do this in order to respond to some contemporary moral ethical issues. They use different approaches and have different goals, but ultimately each disconnects scripture from natural law. And I would say that by doing so, they undermine both a proper understanding of natural law as well as a proper understanding of scripture. Here I'd use the example of Alan Verhey. He's an ethicist. He says he discovered in scripture what he calls a theocratic ethics which he rejects anything that could be interpreted as natural law. Now he's an ethicist, so he's interested in the moral teachings, including those of Christ on marriage and virginity, and St. Paul, who condemns acts against nature. So that's the example I want to use from him. Verhey argues that when Christ taught moral principles, he told stories about sexuality to contextualize a general law. Paul comes on the scene. He sets out to preach the gospel of Christ, but instead he distorts Christ's teaching because Paul focused too, too much on the particulars of the story, which Verhey argues are distinct from the general law. Paul's myopic interpretation turns the particulars of Christ's story into a law the natural law, or a norm. And he sees this as preventing a proper application of Christ's teaching to our contemporary situation. So how does he conclude regarding sexuality? Christ gives a general moral teaching on sexuality in his story. Paul gives his personal interpretation as a rigid law condemning acts against nature. Verhey therefore claims this is contrary to Christ's teaching and is invalidly interpreted as an argument for a natural law which promotes heterosexual acts 
and universally condemns homosexual acts. What we see with these, um, these examples are both the speculative and practical implications of separating scripture and natural law. So now I'd like to turn to the church in Aquinas and offer some points that would affirm finding natural law in the scriptures. I'm going to begin with Thomas's commentary on the, new, on the Ten Commandments. In the introduction, he opens this by identifying three things necessary for salvation. One, knowledge of what is to be believed, the creed. Two, knowledge of what is to be desired, which is contained, he says, in the Lord's Prayer. And three, knowledge of what is to be done, what the law teaches. That's the point we want to focus on in this talk. Now, since Thomas is writing on the Ten Commandments, one might assume that the law of which he speaks is a Mosaic law. However, this would be presumptuous because he actually proceeds to speak of four laws. And he presents them in the order of historical appearance in salvation history. The law of nature, the law of sin, the Mosaic law, and the divine new law of grace. Now, most of you would say, well, eternal law is missing. I would argue that this is neither an omission nor an oversight. Rather, Thomas thinks his readers know that natural law presumes eternal law. Since actually in this text, he defines natural law as nothing other than the light of the intellect instilled in us by God. If God instills a law within us, this law must pre-exist in God himself, i.e. the eternal law. Here I would just extend because Thomas elsewhere calls the eternal law, we know, the law of divine providence. A law in which every creature participates. This law is imprinted upon the creature according to their individual nature. And man, as a rational being, has a unique participation in this eternal law, since he can know this law according to his own reason. Thomas concludes with a classic definition of natural law, which is nothing else than the rational creature's participation in the eternal law. Since it is a participation in the higher eternal law, Thomas goes so far as to say that the two laws can be considered as one. With a caveat, man's participation is limited and imperfect participation in divine reason in a manner proportionate to human nature. But it is a rational participation in eternal law and therefore is properly called lex law. Now, moving to the second law mentioned, <clears throat> Thomas calls this the law of sin. Why? The, or the law of concupiscence with the devil as its creator. Paul too speaks of this war between the law in my members, which holds me captive to the law of sin and the law of God in my inmost self. In the Summa Theologiae, Thomas makes a finer distinction here when he's speaking of this law of sin. And he calls concupiscence an inclination because it falls short of being a law per se. Why? Because it's a deviation of reason. 
Still, he still continues to say, but it is a law insofar as divine law deprives man of his proper dignity as a penalty. So God is following, God imposes this as a law, even though in man it is contrary to reason, so is not properly a law. This second law inclination towards sin in some way destroyed the first law. So therefore, a third law was necessary in order to restore to man a sense of sin and virtue. And thus God established the old law, the Mosaic law. But this law is a law of fear, as noted in Sirach. The beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord drives away sin. The first Vatican Council emphasized this in De Filius, noting that God chose to reveal his decrees in part so that even in the present condition of the human race, fallen nature, those divine truths, which are by their nature accessible to human reason, can be known readily by all men with firm certitude and with no trace of error. But fear can only remove, can only help us to avoid some sin. Fear alone is insufficient for drawing us away from vice and towards virtue. Therefore, God established the fourth law, the perfect law of grace. Now, moving on to what about this natural law and the Mosaic law? So taking two of these laws specifically. Having defined and provided a rationale for the existence of these various laws, we could rephrase the question. If the old law restores a sense of natural law, lost due to original sin, and if both laws were promulgated to lead man from vice to virtue, are they identical? Is natural law identical to Mosaic law? If not, how are they different? We've already made reference this morning, and we can continue to make reference to Paul's letter and teaching in the Romans. I made reference to Gratian's decree. But further arguments on this relationship between these two laws comes from Augustine. He wrote that divine providence inscribed the natural law upon the rational soul. Why? So that man could live according to the divine law. So we see a relationship here. Aquinas, who was quoted earlier in his commentary to Romans, also argues, though, that although the Gentiles have no written law, they do have natural law. He's making some comparison here. And further, De Filius again states that God, the beginning and end of all things, can be known with certitude by the natural light of human reason from created things. It doesn't make a reference to eternal law, but we know that we can definitely know God through eternal law, of course, through revelation. So the point here is it's addressing natural law and the knowledge of God. Now, if the church definitively teaches that all men can know God and the law with certainty that enables them to follow the content of the Mosaic law, then it would seem that perhaps the two are identical. But is that what Gratian meant when he said contained in? Thomas rejects such an interpretation. He says one cannot identify natural law and revealed law 
because the law and the gospel, quoting Gratian, contain many things that are above nature. But at the same time, he adds, one can know the fullness of natural law in the law and the gospel. So you see it these two ways. The natural law contains something of these truths, but the fullness is in the scriptures themselves. But they're not identical because there is something lacking, which is what Thomas argues further. He emphasizes how the law of God compensates for the inadequacies of natural law. So there cannot be an identity because there are there is a serious lack in natural law. He identifies four limitations of natural law based on causality. Final causality. There is a lack of proportion between man's ultimate end of beatitude and natural law. Since Although it's a participation in eternal law, it's limited by our human reason. Again, Father made reference to that this morning. Material causality. Human reason is fallible. Therefore, even what truths are in the natural law, we are often have obstacles due to passion, due to darkness of reason. As we apply that general law to the particular. The final two arguments he makes are addressing formal and efficient causality. Here he points out that human law, as particular instantiations of natural law, is insufficient. Because, and so he's speaking here of the whole question of if we take natural law and we put it into the human law, what's going on then? Well, there's something of a governing of human action. First, as to governing interior acts. Second, as to curbing, curbing evil acts, which hinder perfection. He concludes and says that basically these are imperfect in natural law. They cannot fulfill these. Why? He quotes Psalm 19 on the perfection and purity of God's law. The law revealed by God, which is sufficient for avoiding sin, converting souls, guiding us to virtue and directing us to our supernatural end, which natural law cannot do. So there's something of contained in, but also limitations. Now, due to time, I'm going to skip over because of what Father Shembri did. I'm going to skip over the question of finding natural law in the scriptures. Although Thomas has some good discussions there from a theological, philosophical perspective with some, some of the causality on the philosophical points as to what is the connection? Where do we find natural law in the Mosaic law? I'm going to instead make a shift and move to our second question. Is grace necessary to recover a sense of natural law? Now, when Father Tabachek introduced this morning's schedule, he said, and Sister Catherine Joseph will give her opinion. <laughs> that was very good. <laughs> I want to make a few preliminary points. Number one. If we ask whether grace is necessary to recover a sense, obviously we are presupposing that the sense of natural law has been lost, can be lost, and secondly, that it can be reclaimed, which also implies already something of a sense of the sense, the, the law of sin, because concupiscence has to play into this loss. Something had to cause this loss. Number two, this topic 
is also very title question is very challenging because we're touching on the vast and well-known nature grace controversy. Number three, since I am speaking of that, any answer must avoid the two primary Christian errors. Pelagianism on the one hand, that we can achieve and know our supernatural end and achieve it without grace. And on the other hand, a strictly Lutheran Calvinist interpretation, which says we can do nothing good. Setting those two aside briefly, our answer has to lie in the middle. Because as Thomas argues, although in the state of corrupt nature, man falls short of what he could do by his nature. So because of sin, we still can't perform everything. We can't do everything that Adam and Eve could do prior to sin. Yet human nature is not altogether corrupted by sin. And even in the state of corrupted nature, by virtue of natural endowments, we can work some particular good. So sin weakened our ability to know, to choose the true good, disordered our passions, but our intellect and will are still ordered toward the true good, the true and the good, let me say. And even our passions, though not ordered by reason, are still ordered according to their nature to a sensible good and not to per se evil. One final caveat. The answer to this question is inherently connected to our understanding of natural law as a law which God has as its author, a law which has God as its author. To define natural law without reference to God renders the question of grace mute. Moving forward then. There are three main point, main questions here to arrive at the final question, but I will try to do this as briefly as I can. Is grace necessary? Well, the first step I would say is, how does man possess knowledge of natural law first? Secondly, how do we lose that sense of natural law? And only then can we say, is grace necessary for recovering it? So knowledge of the law, returning to Aquinas' commentary on the Ten Commandments. He states that natural law was given to all creation, and therefore all are bound to observe it, and none can claim ignorance. Now, he's not saying prior to, this is post-original sin. Any law must be promulgated, therefore God instilled natural law when he created man, such that by his very nature, we can know the law. This is not a strange concept. We see this even in Socrates, Aristotle, the Stoics, etc. They defended the existence of an unwritten law of some sort. Now, Thomas considers this law to be in man habitually, whether saint or sinner. Even if someone is sleeping, or he says, even a child prior to the age of reason, still possesses this law in some way. And it is in this context that he introduces another side topic, the whole notion of synderesis, the spark of conscience, which he defines as a law of the mind, a habit containing the precepts of the natural law. Now, if we turn to Adam in his perfect state of nature prior to the fall, 
He could, of course, by his natural power, do the good without the, the natural good, without the addition of gratuitous grace. Even loving God as first cause above all things. Thomas notes this again in his De Veritate, and he uses here the argument of causality. If God is the efficient, first efficient cause and final end, every creature natural tends, naturally tends towards its end, and all things are ordered to God as their end. Therefore, love of God above all things is natural to man, as to every creature in its own way, not formally as love. Here again, we're, we're, we're always on the edge of this nature-grace discussion. So we need to make sure we understand here what Thomas is speaking of as to nature. On the one hand, we can speak of, well, everything we have from God is grace, even as to creation. But Thomas is here distinguishing that which belongs to nature as a gift from God by his divine providence in creating that nature, which is distinct from the added grace necessary to reach our supernatural end. But if natural law is in some way natural to man, how do we lose it? So there is something natural here. How do we lose this? Well, Thomas rephrases the question, actually, and says, I'm sorry, he actually states this question directly in question 94. Can natural law be abolished from the heart of man? If it's written on our heart, how can we lose it? And even Augustine says that it is stamped on our soul. Therefore, it would seem to be irrevocable. Yet every day, people perform actions or argue in favor of actions which are radically opposed to natural law. Father Holt spoke of some of these this morning. Thomas reconciles the irrevocable nature of natural law and overtly contrary acts by distinguishing between the general universal principles and the secondary principles, which again, Father Holtz already addressed those, so I'll try to skip over that very quickly here. But those most general principles, seeking good, can never be blotted out or ignored, nor those first principles that um, are common to all things that exist. Remember these, as I said, Father Father Holtz already noted this when he spoke of the first principle of natural law, do good. And then those first instantations of this from our experience as to the continuation of existence, male, female coming together, and the social nature and the knowledge of first truth and knowledge of God. Well, if we can know these, where does, enter, enter, where does error enter in? It enters in this application as soon as we take the next step to those next proximate conclusions. Due to concupiscence, our natural inclinations can be corrupted by vicious habits, our natural knowledge of good darkened by the passions and sinful habits. In this way, Thomas says that the secondary precepts of natural law can be blotted out from the human heart. So though we know these first principles, we will conclude and arrive at false conclusions. Now, but doesn't it appear today that some people have no concept of natural law? Here, using the example of Batman's Joker, 
still they choose evil according to some good. I would argue even those we see, even someone who commits suicide, do they not contradict that natural preservation of being? We could say no, because they are trying to end something that is already harming that good. And they're seeing this as some good in some way. Definitely a, a radical distortion. Even those who promote homosexual acts, I would argue, because many would say, well, certainly they do not agree with this idea of male-female coming together. No, not as male-female, but the idea of having offspring. They're promoting that, actually, aren't they? So we see that there's a radical distortion, but yet something of those initial precepts, those first um, principles, even in those who are so distorted. So to move forward, what we can conclude is that if there is a sense of natural law, if we understand it as to meaning general principles, these belong to man according to nature. To say they were lost would be to say that something of human nature was destroyed and we fall into the error of Luther and Calvin. But natural law extends beyond the general principles. And in this sense, we can speak of our having lost something of a sense of natural law. So let me try to jump ahead here and bring this to a conclusion to allow a few, little time for, for questions. So the question, can we recover the sense of natural law without grace? The final step. Again, there's an obvious um, reference here in Thomas's Prima Secundae question 109, because Thomas asked there, is grace necessary? What is the necessity of grace? I would like to speak first to the two first articles, and I'll conclude with the seventh. In the first two articles, Thomas speaks of the necessity of grace as to knowledge and then as to fulfillment of the divine law, our actions and virtue. In both articles, Thomas speaks of a necessity of what is common to human nature in its original state and in the corrupted state of original sin. Now, the first article, grace and knowledge. Something that we've already noted, he first notes that on the level of human nature, man needs divine help for knowledge of any truth based on causality. Here he's arguing from the idea of this natural gift of human nature. There we need God's help. He calls this a natural light. But then he clarifies that this natural light is sufficient for knowing the truths of nature so that we can have a knowledge, even based on original sin, there is somewhere where we have some knowledge of these basic principles. He adds, of course, that God could miraculously add to this. The point is that due to the gift of creation, grace per se is not necessary for man to know something of natural law, even after the fall. But moving to Article 2, what about grace and fulfilling the law? This is a different question. Here we face a further challenge because human action is not solely about knowledge of general principles. It's about applying those principles to the particular. And this requires movement from that general to the particular. And because of here, because of the darkening of the intellect, because of the weakness of the will, because of the disorder of passions, this is where error enters in. 
So Thomas argues again, prior to the fall and after the fall, man needs the help of God as a first mover to do or wish any good whatsoever, creation. With that help, which is due to nature, even in the state of sin, human nature is not totally corrupted and can perform some good works in accord with its natural powers. But after the fall, concupiscent prevents us from doing not only all good natural works, but any supernatural works. Therefore, we cannot fulfill the commandments of the law. Even those we know generally as to general precepts, like do not kill without grace. In this state, we need divine help and grace to be healed and to carry out those works of supernatural virtue, which are meritorious. As I said, I would like to conclude just with a note of Article 7 of Question 109. Thomas speaks there of the luster, the brilliance, the 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 reflection of the divine light, which is grace, which lost its light, lost its luminosity in original sin. And he says it cannot be brought back except God sheds his light anew. And as I say, we still have something of this knowledge, yet the fullness of grace requires God stepping in again. And the guilt of eternal punishment, God steps in to remove that guilt, which he alone can remove, but also helps us to rise again with this habitual grace so that we can move forward to our supernatural end. And he speaks of this because this grace is, remember, external in one way, yet becomes an internal motion within us.